turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. We come this morning to a passage about a rich, if you're reading from the ESV, it'll say the rich young man. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. That's the sort of the subtitle that the text gives us. Uh, I want you to understand from Luke, you don't flip there, but there are two other passages in the Gospels that address this particular event. There's Mark 10 and Luke 18. You don't have to flip there. Mark 10 says that Jesus, in his response to him, he spoke to him loving him. So the response that Jesus gives to this guy is a response of love. And then in Luke 18, it makes the statement that it calls him a rich young ruler. So that's also significant for us as well. You won't find those two statements in the text this morning. What Jesus is going to do is he has this encounter with this this rich young man, and today we're just going to walk through the dialogue. Next week, in in the verses that will follow in verse 25 and following, he's going to turn to his disciples and he's going to expound upon what it is that he says to the rich young ruler. And we're going to look at that next week. But for this morning, we're just looking at, uh, at the actual narrative. So we're going to walk through this. I'm going to read it, then we'll, we'll pray and we'll get to work. In Matthew 19, verse 16, it says, Behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Now, at this point in the Gospel of Mark, it says Jesus, turning to him, looked at him, and he loved him. And then he makes this statement. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. The Greek word there is a very, very deep form of grieving. It's usually used in reference to funerals, the loss of a loved one. So he wasn't just a little upset. He was deeply grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the conclusion of another year, Lord. We thank you for the blessings of 2015. We thank you for the joy and the friendships the ways that you provided for us, took care of our families, put roof over our head, put food on our table. We've trusted you for all of these things, and you have faithfully provided all of them. Help us to trust you again for 2016. Lord, as we come to this text this morning, I pray, Father, as we look at this fellow, this rich young man, I pray, God, that we would not allow the things of this life 
money or possessions, clothes, new car, just the pursuit of wealth itself, Lord. I pray, God, that we would not allow those things to enter into our decision-making when it comes to trusting you. Open our eyes to see that this morning, Lord. Show us exactly what we need to see from your dialogue with this fellow. We pray you do that. We ask these things in the name of the one you sent to pay the price for our sin. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, we come to a very explicit passage this morning. Jesus routinely talks in parables. He uses metaphors. He will teach in all sorts of different ways using object illustrations, but we encounter none of that this morning. The question is explicit. It is straightforward. It's the most important question any of us ought to ever ask. And Jesus is equally explicit in responding. The question is, what do I need to do to go to heaven? No more important question, no more fundamental question. This is the central issue. This ought to be the priority, the most pivotal thing that we ought to be asking. And he says to him, what do I need to, go to, do, what do, I need to do to go to heaven? And Jesus is going to be explicit in his response. This is an important passage. The reason why we need to carefully consider this this morning is because I still feel in terms of the interactions that I have with many Christians and in terms of many churches that I visit, we in evangelicalism are talking about the gospel. What is the gospel? Of course, that word that means the good news, that Christ sent his son to die on the cross to forgive us of our sins, to pay the penalty that we ourselves owe, yet we could never pay. That's all well and good. But what does that really mean? And I, I'm worried that there's still confusion over what that means to us, what that ought to mean to us. And we still observe many churches that I think are confused about what that should look like. When Shanti and I were first, uh, when we were, we weren't newly married. I went off and spent a year in the Marine Corps. So we'd been married for about, a, we're new, we're, okay, relatively speaking, for those of you who've been married for many, many years, we were relatively newly married, but not brand newly married. I had come back from the Marine Corps. We were visiting churches trying to find a place to, to call home, to call our church home. And uh, we went and we visited one particular church in Bryant, Texas there. And the fellow that was preaching, he was concluding the morning message that morning, and it was the conclusion of, a, it was the conclusion of, a, of an evangelistic outreach campaign that the church had conducted. And in the invitation, he basically presented the gospel, and in the invitation, he said, now, if you're here today and you want to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, he said, I want you to understand, you don't need to worry about repenting from any kind of a sin. You don't need to worry about making any kind of radical changes in your life. You don't need to worry about getting baptized or making church attendance a priority. You don't need to worry about any of those things. What you really just need to do is you need to just trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to believe in what he did for you on the cross. Now, I happen to know this man very well, and I have a great deal of respect for him. I am not questioning his character. I don't think he is deliberately trying to mislead or misdirect individuals. I'm not questioning his character, but I'm questioning his judgment regarding what the, what the Scriptures actually teach. Because as we come to this passage this morning, we find something that is totally different than what I still find many churches are teaching in evangelical Christianity. There's this notion out there that salvation is essentially a two-step process. If I could 
I'm going to try and break it down to you. There's a, a whole lot of different theological textbooks that are written, but if I could just simplify it, the idea is that salvation is a two-step process, that the first step is coming to understand and know what Jesus did for you on the cross and trusting what he did for you on the cross. That's the first step. Now, if you can believe in what Jesus did for you on the cross, you will be saved. There's no fundamental call to change. There's no fundamental call to discipleship or repenting of sins or anything of that nature. There's no call to being sorrowful over the way you've lived your life previously. It's simply just understanding what Jesus did for you on the cross. And if you can believe in that and trust in that, that's the first step, okay? Also known as accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. That first step will then be followed by a subsequent step, a second step. So salvation becomes a two-step sort of process. If you're stepping up some stairs here, your first step up the stairway is just trusting and knowing who Jesus is and what He did for you. And then the second step then becomes, will you surrender your life to Him? Will He become the Lord of your life? So the first step is you accept Jesus Christ as Savior, just knowing what He did for you on the cross. And then the second step is accepting Him as Lord, that is, surrendering your will to His will, letting Him make the decisions in your life, prioritizing the things that He prioritizes. Okay? So it's like a two-step process. And a number of individuals, including this fellow that I know from, from Bryan, Texas, were under the, the illusion that the second step would sooner or later, or even much, much later, follow if you could just do the first step. The problem is that there's nowhere in the Scriptures where this is taught. To accept Christ as Savior does not happen if you do not also accept Him as Lord. The reason I say that to you today is because Jesus Himself says that right here in this text in Matthew chapter 19. Look at what he says here, Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. It says, Behold, a man comes up to Jesus. Okay? Now, we know a couple of things about this fellow. We know, number one, that he's rich. He's wealthy. He's got lots of money. Number two, we know that he is a young man. If you'll look, if you'll look down in verse 20, it says, The young man said to him, now, we don't know his exact age, but based on the wording there in the Greek, we can assume he's anywhere from 18 to 30 years old, okay? So he's a relatively young man. He's wealthy and he's young. I mean, and by wealthy, he's extremely wealthy. He's driving the Lexus camels, not the Ford Pinto camels. I mean, he's got the high-quality, high-breed sort of uh, camels that he's rolling around on. Um, he's probably dressed really nice. He's, he's wealthy. He's inherently wealthy. It also says in Luke 18 that he's a ruler. Now, Israel at this point in time is not in control of their land. They are subjected to the Roman Empire. The Romans collect taxes, and the Romans appoint rulers to govern over the affairs of Israel. When it calls him a ruler, you understand the Jews are not ruling their land. We know he's Jewish because Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. And he says, I've done all of that my whole life. So he's probably Jewish. We can almost say that with 100% certainty. The scripture calls him a ruler. He's not ruling. The Romans are ruling. If he's Jewish, he's not ruling over the, any part of Israel, which means that he's probably a ruler of the synagogue, which is quite a feat, particularly 
if you're somewhere between 18 to 30 years of age. So in this interaction that this guy has with Jesus, you understand he's not being glib. He's not just shooting off of the mouth. When Jesus says you need to keep the commandments, you need to do all these things, the guy says to him, yeah, I've done that. And it's probably, as far as he sees it, he probably genuinely believes that. Not only does he believe that, but probably his peers and his contemporaries really believe that because he's been appointed to be what we would refer to today as like a pastor. Like he's, he's an overseer of the synagogue. He's a ruler of the synagogue. He's responsible for organizing the weekly worship services. He's the one that gets, you know, the Jewish equivalent of Dustin and Christine up there, make sure they're ready to go, gets them playing. He gets all the people situated. He gets all the chairs set out. He gets it all ready to go. He pulls everybody together, and he's the leader of this group. So he's wealthy. He's got lots of money. He's religious. He's so religious, in fact, that he probably oversees the synagogue. That's almost certainly what that term means. And he's really young. And despite all of these things, he knows regardless of all the religious teachings that he follows, he knows deep down inside that there's still something fundamentally wrong. He still questions whether or not he's going to heaven. So he comes to Jesus and he says to him, good teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What do I have to do to go to heaven? Despite my wealth, Despite my success in the synagogue, despite my religious devotion, there's still something that's missing. What is it? And Jesus' response is, well, why do you ask me about what is good? Now, Jesus is saying something here, which again looks a bit, you know, enigmatic to us. It's kind of an obscure statement. But again, this guy would know exactly what Jesus is getting at. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Jesus' statement is, the person who can truly say what is good is the one who is good. And when he says there is only one who is truly good, it's clearly a reference to God. So God is the one who is supposed to say what is good and what is bad. And he is saying, Jesus' response to this guy is, why are you asking me about what is good when you know that it's God the Father who is supposed to direct you and guide you and tell you what good deeds you must do? Now, Jesus knows that he's God. But he's trying to draw something out of this guy. He's trying to get a statement out of him. This man knows that he's not going to heaven, and yet he comes to Jesus asking Jesus what it is that he needs to do. He's not just turning to his Bible, though he is intimately familiar with his Bible. There is something about Christ. He's drawn to Christ. He sees something in Jesus, and he makes the statement to him, good teacher, what do I have to do? And Jesus' response is, that's ironic that you're calling me good, because we both know who is truly good. And the rich young ruler doesn't question that. Doesn't it, he doesn't push back against that. He doesn't say, well, I was just trying to be nice and calling you good. You know, When Jesus says, why are you coming to me with your questions? God the Father is the one who is supposed to tell you what is good. Your Bible is supposed to tell you what is good. Why are you coming to me with what is good? The rich young man, he doesn't push back against that at all, which means in his thinking, he senses on some level that Jesus is God or the Messiah. And again, it's not to say that his ideas of what that means are perfectly crystal clear, but he knows Jesus has answers that he's not finding in his understanding of the Bible. When Jesus comes back and he says, there's only, what is, there's only one who is good, 
if you would enter life, keep the commandments? We already know he's not going to be satisfied with that answer. Jesus' statement is, just be perfect. As we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew, we went through Matthews 5, 6, and 7, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And you know that the standard of keeping the commandments is an impossible standard. Don't murder isn't just the taking of a life. Don't murder boils down to a heart condition in which you may have been so angry with someone that you would have wished him dead. Don't commit adultery isn't simply the act of sleeping with another woman to whom you're not married. Jesus makes it extremely clear if you've ever looked at a woman with lustful intent, you've basically done the deed in your heart. Don't steal, well, that's tied heavily to don't covet. It's not just a matter of whether or not you've never taken something that's belonged to someone. It's whether or not you've ever looked at something that someone else had and secretly wished you could just take it from them. You coveted it. Jesus' statement is, if you want to go to heaven, it's it's simple. Just be perfect. Just keep all of the commandments. To which all of us in this room, sane thinking people would say, well, that's impossible. If we're really going to be brutally honest with ourselves. And this is where his culture deviates. His culture teaches him that it's actually possible to keep the commandments. They do so from a legalistic perspective. We've looked at the Pharisees in depth before. Teaching that there are actually ways that you can satisfy the law without satisfying the law. And so his response is rooted in that understanding. He makes a statement, which ones? In other passages, Later on in verse 20, he's going to say, all of these I've kept. But he makes the statement here to Jesus, which ones? And Jesus' response is, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, that is to tell the truth, honor your father and mother. And then he quotes from Leviticus 19, which is a summation of the entire law. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So his question is, which ones do I have to keep? You've got to understand, there's two tablets in Moses' hand. When he comes down off of Mount Sinai, he has the Ten Commandments. On the first tablet, you got the first five commandments. On the second tablet, you got the second five commandments. The first tablet deals with your relationship with God. It says, you shall have no other gods. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall honor the Sabbath. Remember to keep it. You shall not make any graven image. It has all those types of commandments. The second tablet has honor your father and mother, don't steal, you know, don't murder, don't lie. It has those types of things. When Jesus responds to the rich young ruler, he quotes from the second tablet. He doesn't quote from the first tablet. And that's kind of an interesting thing. You and I are sitting here today, we're thinking, why would he not quote from the second tab- or from the first tablet? Why does he quote from the second tablet? And the answer again is obvious. The first tablet deals with your vertical relationship with God. The second tablet, the second five commandments, deal with the horizontal relationship that you have with each other. The Ten Commandments, the Decalogue as a whole, is to be understood as a singular objective. You're not truly having a pure relationship with the Father if you're not trying to also have a pure relationship with those around you. If you can't keep the second tablet, the commandments on the second tablet, then there's no way you're keeping any of the commandments on the first tablet. Your relationship with God hinges on your ability to have a proper relationship with your fellow man. So Jesus isn't saying necessarily that the first tablet is useless. But in terms of really getting to the crux of the matter with this fellow, he's going to go to the second tablet because the two are a whole. So he makes this statement, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. And in verse 20, he says to him, all these things I have kept 
Again, speaking out of his Pharisaic, legalistic perspective. He genuinely thinks he's keeping them. What do I still lack? Despite his assessment of himself, deep down he knows he's still broken in some way. So even though he thinks he's keeping all the commandments, he knows deep down there's something I'm missing. And Jesus has the answer. And look at what Christ says here in verse 21. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. There's two things essentially that Jesus tells this guy. Take your money, take your material possessions, get rid of them, sell them. Take all that money, give it to the poor for the sake of having treasure in heaven. Now how is Jesus able to say that unless he's God? And why would this fellow be so grieved at his response if he also didn't understand that Jesus is God? You understand the first thing that Jesus does here is he says, when it comes to reward, when it comes to treasure, based upon my word to you, as the Son of God, I want you to take all of your material wealth. I want you to sell it, and I want you to take care of your fellow men who are impoverished. I want you to meet their needs, provide food for them, provide clothing for them, take care of them, love them. Based upon my word to you, no other thing. I am telling you that if you do that, though you will be impoverished materially in this life, you will be rewarded in heaven. So Jesus' statement is, number one, if you want to be perfect, and a lot of us are going to approach this text and we're going to say, well, what Jesus is saying here is that we need to give our money for the betterment of those around us. Absolutely. That's one direct application. Absolutely. But you understand to restrict it only to what we do with our money would be to draw a narrow circle around what Christ is saying here and to miss the heart of what he's saying. What he is saying is, number one, whatever he tells us to do, whatever directions he gives us, we have to trust him, take him at his word. If he says that a particular thing will bring blessing, if he says that a particular action or a particular behavior will produce reward in heaven, then we need to trust him. So number one, what he's saying here to this rich young ruler is, take my word for it. If you want to be perfect, do this for the sake of reward and blessing in heaven. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to us here today. If you want reward in heaven, you have to take his word for whatever will produce and bring about blessing, and you have to follow it. So he says, number one, do this. Now, that's a specific application to this guy. If you want to be perfect based on what I'm saying to you, believing me, this is what you need to do. Number two, having done that, come follow me. Follow Jesus. Live the life that he lives. Do the things that he does. Prioritize the things that he prioritizes. Now the question is explicit. What do I have to do to go to heaven? And the response is, trust in me, 
follow me. We know that what happens on the cross is critical to salvation. We know that if Jesus doesn't die on the cross, we don't get forgiven of our sins. We don't go to heaven. Jesus is going to die on the cross. He's going to forgive us of our sins. But when he is confronted by the explicit question, what needs to happen for salvation, his interaction with this guy doesn't touch on those things. His interaction with this guy is, trust me, follow me. Discipleship. That's what he's telling him. Now again, most of you are aware of this. Um, I used to serve in the United States Marine Corps a number of years ago. I still have a number of friends who are active in the military. I have a number of friends that I know from high school who are active in the Army. A number of those friends are still today serving in Afghanistan, although most of the fellows from Iraq that I knew, they've all come home. But about five years ago, there was a fellow by the name of Bowie Bergdahl. You've probably heard about him in the news recently. Uh, one night, he decided, and he was uh, at a forward operating base, OP operating position, MEST, OP MEST. It's in southeastern uh, Afghanistan near Waziristan, Pakistan. It's probably about, uh, about 100 miles from the border of Pakistan. It was a forward operating position. It was in the middle of nowhere, and nothing ever happened there. It wasn't like the front lines of action. It was basically just a control point for logistics, moving equipment back and forth. But they had to control this crossroads to make sure that people didn't plant IEDs there, those roadside bombs. So their job at OP Mast was simply to make sure that people didn't plant IEDs so that army trucks could go back and forth carrying logistics. That was his job. And five years ago, he walked off his post while he was off duty and just disappeared. He was eventually captured by the Taliban and held for five years as a prisoner. And though I personally don't know anyone who lost their life, I have friends who have told me of friends that they had who lost their lives as a result of his decision to do that. Immediately when an American soldier goes missing, everything stops, all operations grind to a halt, and you are responsible for going and finding out what happened to that guy. Thousands of servicemen left secured military bases and spent not weeks, but months in the field, exposed to enemy hostile fire, looking for this guy, kicking down doors, looking around, asking questions. And multiple individuals died as a result of his decision to leave his position. Now, he was recently, if you've been following the news, uh, the American government bartered for his return. They traded five Taliban terrorists who were imprisoned at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, for his return. And he is now facing a court-martial as a result of his decision to leave his, his base. When asked about why did you do it, why did you just suddenly decide to walk off, he gives three answers. Number one, he was deliberately trying to create what is known as a DUST-1. It's an acronym, because the military uses acronyms for everything. I won't get into all the details, but essentially he was trying to create specifically a code red. Why? Why was he doing that? 
because he was so deeply concerned with the military oversight, the chain of command, what his army leaders were telling him to do, he felt that if they continued on as they were, that people would be killed. And he felt that there was no way that he would ever be able to have a reasonable hearing with his superior officers, that he would have to do something dramatic in order to draw attention to what he considered to be gross misconduct, gross judgment errors from the leadership. That there's no way that the higher-ups would ever listen to a lowly private in the army unless he did something really dramatic, like go missing. That was the first thing that he did. That was the first reason that he gave to gain an audience. The second reason that he gave for why he did it was to preserve human life. His fear was that if he didn't go off base to create this sort of code red type of situation to gain the audience that he needed, that he felt that he needed, that what would end up happening is somebody that he was close to would, would die as a result of what was happening there in Afghanistan, that somebody innocent would lose their life. And so he gives these two reasons. The third reason that he gives is that he wanted to see if he could make it in a hostile environment, like some sort of a special forces elite commando type, if he could make it behind enemy lines, if he could survive apart from his normal military routine. He wanted to see if he could infiltrate Afghani culture, potentially gather information, intelligence on the enemy, and bring that back to his superior officers. So you have three reasons given. Number one, inept leadership. I can't trust the leadership here. They're making inept decisions. Number two, I need to preserve the life of my fellow soldiers. And number three, to try and gather intel on the enemy and to, I'm paraphrasing, to be awesome, essentially. And he was very clear on those three reasons. And I have no doubt that all three of those reasons weighed in his mind. As he made the decision to go off base, I have no doubt that at any given point in time, he looked at different reasons and said, yes, i got to do it for this, or yes, i got to do it for that. But here's the problem. When we make decisions, as Christians, as anybody, when we make decisions, the lie that we sometimes cling to is that every variable in our decision-making process is equally weighted. That when we make a decision, even though there may be three or four or five or ten variables involved, that all of those variables are going to carry an equal amount of weight in our decision-making process. And that's just simply not true. All of us in this room, we privilege certain things when we decide to do something. There are always those one or two variables which carry more weight, which carry more significance, which outweigh all the rest. So even though you can look at any given situation, you come up with a hundred reasons to do something or not to do it, it doesn't really matter if there's one reason you really like for why you should or shouldn't do something. At the end of the day, though we may come up with a whole whack of reasons to justify any type of a behavior, honestly, it really just comes down to one reason. As I've been considering this fellow, Bowie Bergdahl, and it's been some, of some significant interest to me because of loved ones that I, I have known who have experienced severe loss as a result of his decision-making. He gives three reasons. He says to gain an audience with a higher command. Well, there were many avenues for gaining an audience. There are many ways that you could have secured a hearing with your captain, with your lieutenant, 
if he felt that he needed to do this in order to get an audience, and if the priority factor in his decision-making was to secure an audience, then what we would expect is numerous attempts on his part to try and peacefully get an audience with higher command, right? Numerous emails, numerous requests, him going and talking to his platoon leader, him going and talking to his company first sergeant, any of these guys, hey, I'm just worried about some of this stuff here, blah, 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 can I just talk with you about these things? If that was the number one reason, just to gain an audience with higher command, then wouldn't you expect to find repeated attempts to gain an audience with higher command not going to this extreme? You would, but you don't find any of that. You know how many attempts Private Bowie Bergdahl made to gain an audience with higher command? Zero. If the intention was to preserve innocent life, if he was truly worried about his fellow soldiers being placed in ridiculous situations where they're going to get slaughtered at a military outpost that saw zero action, that was never fired upon, then wouldn't you expect to see him pulling his guys aside, whispering to them, saying, hey, you know, like we're ordered to deploy our, our forces this way. Maybe we should do it like this. You know, I just worry that maybe our tactics aren't up to snuff. Maybe we're doing things in the wrong way. What if we were to do it like this instead? Or what if we were to do it like that instead? If he's really worried about somebody he knows getting killed, and he doesn't want to see those people getting killed, and if he did this in order to preserve human life, wouldn't you first expect to find him interacting with his fellow soldiers and saying, hey, let's not do it this way, let's do it some other way? You would. All of the members of his company interviewed you know how many conversations he had about tactics? You know how many times he expressed to his fellow soldiers worry or fear over the way that they were going about their business? Zero. Zero times. He was so nervous about somebody getting killed that he never said anything to anyone about them potentially getting killed if they kept on doing things the way they were doing things. Which comes to the third reason to be awesome, that's my paraphrase of it, to see if he could sneak out, infiltrate Afghan culture, gain intelligence on the enemy, and bring that back, even though to do so would be to violate a direct order. As you look at the different journals and the different letters that he wrote home to his parents, you find him reminiscing on that possibility quite a bit. You find that overarchingly is the, the idea that seems to take value and precedence in his mind. So even though he points at a number of different reasons for why he's going to make this decision, the reality is that for him and the decision that he made, there was really one reason that he prioritized above all the rest. And the same is true for you and me. For us, in any given decision that we make, it's a lie that we tell ourselves when we come up with a whole bunch of different reasons for why we may or may not do anything. The truth is, at the end of the day, we all choose one thing that is most valuable to us, which we prioritize above all others. Looking at this guy here in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus senses exactly what the priority in his life is. For this guy... It was his money. It was his wealth. So Jesus says to him, here's what you got to do. Get rid of your money. Based on my word, you'll have reward in heaven. Then come follow 
me. Does he do it? No. Verse 22, it says, he went away sorrowful, grieving. Why? For he had great possessions. There are lots of things this guy wants to do to follow God. There are lots of things that he is willing to embrace for the sake of being devoted, devoted, devout to the Lord. But there are limits, and there is a priority, and there is a certain value that he assigns to his money that he is not prepared to let go of in order to give it to the Lord. And Jesus hits the nail on the head. As we step back from this passage for a second, I want you to reflect on 2015, 2015. And I want you to think about all the really good things that you had in your life this last year. I want you to think about all the opportunities you had. I want you to think about all the blessings that the Father gave you. I want you to think about your job. I want you to think about your money. I want you to think about your family. I mean, there are any number of different ways that we look for security in our life besides Jesus Christ. I want you to ask yourself this question. Is there any way in which I am being like the rich young ruler? Is there anything in my life, be it money, career, family, is there anything in my life that I look to for my ultimate treasure, for my ultimate joy, more than Jesus. You may answer that question with a resounding no, and I surely, I surely hope that you do. But now I'm going to show you the last little bit of this passage. Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. If there is anything in your life that you are holding on to just as tightly as Jesus, if Christ loves you, which we know that he does, like he loved this guy right here, then guess what 2016 holds for you? In some way, through some set of circumstances, Jesus is going to take that thing you hold on to just as tightly as you claim to hold on to Jesus. And if he loves you, which we know that he does, he's going to take it and challenge you with it having lost this thing, whatever it is, be it career, be it money, be it your car, family, friends. If he takes that away from you, will you still follow him? Because of his love for us, he will challenge us in, that, in those ways. And so my prayer for you as we come into 2016 is that you will meet that challenge and that your trust truly will be in Jesus Christ. Let's bow for a word of prayer.